0: book of Hebrews. And I can tell you, as I reached the end of my studies last night, I immediately was gripped by what I call sermon remorse. I hadn't even preached it yet. And I was already regretting the fact that I am preaching this glorious glorious passage of scripture. I know that I will not do it service because it is so powerful, is it not? Uh, It's just amazing things that are being said here. Now, with that said, the book of Hebrews is renowned for its depth and its difficulty. Uh, It is a difficult book to interpret, and it is a difficult book to preach, and um, uh, in terms of how it stacks up against the rest of the books of the Bible, I would say maybe perhaps only Revelation is more difficult. Uh, The Greek language in the book of Hebrews is by far the most difficult in all the New Testament. The vocabulary is very rare, Um, but I say that only to say that as incredibly profound as this book is, as intricate as it is, as exegetically rigorous as this book is, it is also immensely practical if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And therefore, today I'd like to entitle this sermon, Practical Covenant Theology, because that's really what the book of Hebrews is about is about covenant theology, how we've gone from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and the Covenant supremacy of Jesus Christ and all that is said about that. But really, if we're looking at this text and what it's saying, there are some very practical lessons, I think, that are to be learned from this text of Scripture. So what I want to do is I want to give us three lessons that we can call Lesson 1, 2, and 3, okay? I would say, first of all, number one, lesson one, listen to the voice of God in Scripture. That's the first thing that we want to notice here, is that we are called to listen to God in Scripture. Now, that is carefully phrased. Look at the verse, verse 25 again. It says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So right off the bat, we learn that God is speaking. And where is He speaking? Well, He has spoken in various ways, has He not? Matter of fact, when it comes to God's divine speech, we know this, that God speaks in different modes of revelation. He speaks through natural revelation, that is the created order all around us, as the psalmist declares in Psalm 19, that the the whole creation is pouring forth speech, even without words. On top of that, we know that God speaks in His Word through His prophets and through His apostles. And then, of course, we have incarnational revelation, which is that God spoke directly through His Son, Jesus Christ, who came and became in flesh, and so that the, the glory of God resumed in a body. But when it comes for us now to hear God's voice, to listen to God speak now... What is normative for us is to hear Him speak in Scripture. Sadly, today, people claim to hear God, and that is a normative claim today. People that are hearing God speaking all the time. And I'm not talking about Scripture. I'm talking about things that they claim they're hearing outside of Scripture. Like subjective experience, mystical, ecstatic, work-up, all of these things. And sadly, this is what's part today of a lot of uh, charismatic circles and Pentecostal circles especially where people claim to be hearing God, claim to be hearing a word from God that is not in the word of God. I think that runs completely contrary to what we're given even here in the book of Hebrews. Look at two texts with me. Look at the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. One thing that Hebrews tells us is that as we're thinking of God's voice, God's speaking, God's revelation, what we know for certain is that God has spoken in a decisive and emphatic and in a definitive fashion through His Son, Jesus Christ. It says God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and many portions, and in many ways, because even as you look back at the Old Testament, because that's really what Hebrews is thinking about here, uh, there are very many different modes of revelation. God spoken as he what did he say? Many portions. Uh, he spoke in the law. He spoke in the prophets. He spoke in the psalms. He spoke in different areas of the word of God. Different, different uh, books of scripture. But he also spoke in many ways. That means he speaks through the angel of the Lord. He speaks through a prophet. He speaks through a donkey. He speaks through many ways, different modes of revelation, but this is the contrast. In these last days, He has spoken. And then that word there, He has spoken, is a perfect tense verb, which means it's a once and for all deal. It's a finality. This is the ultimate and final revelation of God to mankind. To us, in His Son. Now, what I would argue is that when He says... In His Son, of course, the author of Scripture is not trying to exclude the speaking of God, let's say, through the Apostles, or through the New Testament prophets that we read about in the book of Acts. Certainly, in His Son is referring to a category. Jesus and the apostolic age is the way that I would characterize that. He has spoken in these last days, through Jesus Christ, in the apostolic age, to His church... Because he is the one who has been appointed the heir of all things. Through him he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. And he upholds everything by the word of his power. When he he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I read that far down... Just to stress, what is the nature of the revelation? Uh, what is the content of the revelation? The revelation is about the redemption that Jesus Christ has brought. The atonement, the sacrifice, and who speaks and who makes purification. It is the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature. Think about that. His Son. So again, God speaks with total totality. And guess what? What? With the totality of God's speech comes a profound accountability. Now the next scripture, Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 1. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we are told that God did speak uh, in his Son, and that that makes us profoundly accountable to what has been spoken. Look at at, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken spoken through angels proved unalterable, again, what's a reference to angels. Is it just speaking about angelic uh, visitations, theophanies, the angel of the Lord? No. Actually, when it says here, the word that was spoken through angels, uh, that is actually a reference to the old covenant law, to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which was According to Jewish tradition and scripture, mediated through angels. Uh, Angels were the agents of revelation, even as Galatians chapter 3 says. But it says, beyond this, that word was unalterable. Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. So there, so the implication now is: well, what happens today? What what, what happens under a new covenant? What, What happens under this dispensation? Under this administration, what happens? He says, "How will we escape if we know we if we neglect so great a salvation?" You can almost uh, highlight or italicize the "we, we, we." The emphasis is this generation, the generation that has received the revelation of the Son of God by the Son of God. We are doubly accountable after it was first spoken. Through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. That's kind of why I emphasize the idea of the the voice of God, uh, the word of God, the revelation of God, because so many people today claim to be hearing from God. I, I only bring this up. Because if you walk into any average bookstore today, Christian bookstore, there you will find stacks and stacks of books by Christian authors who claim to be hearing directly from God. And I'm not talking about memorizing the Bible. I'm talking about mystical experiences. I'm talking about ecstatic workup, where you have some sort of uh, extra-biblical revelation from God and that you are the only person that possesses that revelation. Be careful. Because uh, as far as I can tell in scripture, that mode of revelation has ceased. There is no longer God speaking directly to fallible people who are not inspired by God. There are no prophets, in my opinion. There are no tongue speakers who are speaking supernatural, unintelligible tongues. And that we wait around for a divinely inspired interpreter to interpret that. Uh, in that sense, I am a cessationist. In that sense, I do believe it is dangerous. And I would I would admonish you to listen to God's voice in the Bible and not to subject yourself to the subjective experiences of anyone. Uh, it's sadly today, but so much in the name of continuationist theology errs, I think, on this point, that we have to today, in our own day, We have to subject ourselves to the notions, the private notions of individual people in the church who claim to have a word from God that you don't have access to outside of them. I'm sorry. I don't believe that type of revelatory power is at work today in the word of God. Now, you have to understand, even here in chapter 2 that we looked at, um, because the early church did not have the fullness of God's revelation, Not only was that type of charismatic phenomenon good, it was necessary. They needed revelation of this kind. They needed to have somebody to bring direct revelation from God, I think, until the fullness of that revelation was finished. Uh, So much that can be said on that. But I just, when it comes to God's voice, I'm concerned... That we are not, that we don't have a high view of the voice of God, God speaking. We throw that around so haphazardly and so whimsically. God spoke to me. Oh, God speaks to this person. Oh, God gave this person a direct word. I mean, I've I've talked to people who told me they hear God's voice audibly, out loud. I'm thinking, wow, can I come over? (laughs) I'd like to be part of the theophany. Yeah, I don't think that's happening today. I think the reason why the author of Hebrews uses the even the second the second uh, person uh, 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 reference here in in this chapter is because he's identifying himself as a third generation removed from uh, these kinds of miraculous manifestations of the Spirit, these revelatory uh, modes of revelation. I think even by the time the book of Hebrews was written. I think those kinds of revelatory gifts like uh, uh, prophesying and speaking in other languages miraculously, and even powers of healing and and being able to produce miracles with your hands, I think that was already by this time fading away in the early church. And I think you see that even uh, in church history. You don't see any, there's no possible way whatsoever to confirm any prophets in church history, any tongue speaking in church history, you have hearsay. And you have phenomena. But you do not have any possible way to verify it or authenticate it. And what I would say to our church is that that mode of revelation is confined to the apostolic age. And it makes sense because this is the apex of redemptive history. This is the greatest, highest point of revelation ever in the history of the world. Jesus and the apostles. And so what some want to do is they want to normalize that. And they want to say, oh, that continues even today. I don't think so. I think it was a sign for the final intrusion of God's eschatological purpose in Christ. I think it is the the final sign once and for all that God has spoken through His Son. And that we need to listen to Him. We don't need to listen to people today that claim to have this ongoing, revelatory power. They don't. And I can go on and on and share my own personal experiences, but I will spare you from that. Come and see me after the sermon. I'll tell you plenty of stories. But I'm concerned to say, what, what is the voice you need to be listening to? Are you to go inside yourself? Are you to go to get internally and try to hear the still, small voice in your own heart? What is God saying? I can't hear Him. No, I think we need to go outside of ourselves to the Word of God, to the objective truth of the Word of God. Listen to what God has spoken in Scripture. I think that is the only safe path when it comes to revelation. Now, we are told very clearly here that not only does God speak but in this speaking, God is giving us a warning. You notice that? He says, do not refuse him who is speaking. Uh, that is to say, that God has moved the ball, redemptively speaking. He has, things have progressed, and we need to we need to discern what God has accomplished. Through Jesus Christ. Now put yourself in the feet of the, of the Hebrews. There they are, listening to a new covenant theology coming to them. The, the apostles are teaching that the temple, the institutions of Israel have all been set aside and that something greater has come. Well, You must understand that for millennia, for millennia, you have been doing, uh, you have been interacting with God in this way. You've been going to the temple. You've been doing sacrifice, you've been obeying Leviticus, you've been doing, you know, the ceremonial cleansings, the washings, you've been eating a certain way, a certain way, you have been dressing a certain way, you have been worshipping a certain way, and now here comes the final revelation of God's Son that says He is better and greater than all of that, and you no, you no longer need to go back to the shadows. That is, that is a tectonic shift in the economy of God's people. Furthermore, if you want to bring in the book of Romans, now we are even being told that Gentiles can come in. What? It takes a lot of explaining. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is you better listen to the voice of him who is thundering through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he is saying. You better listen to him. He says, look... If he didn't spare them, right? see too that you don't refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when he re- when they refused him who warned on earth, what is that a reference to? Sinai. So look at the context. Go back to verse 18. He's saying, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. That is Sinai. But now we know, verse 22, we are concerned about a new mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion. And so this is the same parallel here. Don't ref- they, re- they did not escape who refused him, who warned and who spoke and who thundered from the earth, much less, watch the author here, very perceptively, he uses the the, 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 the first person plural pronoun, we, how will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? What is that corresponding to? Zion. Earth. Heaven. You do a study in the book of Hebrews, you will find that Hebrews interacts with heaven, earth. Heaven, earth. Tabernacle on earth, tabernacle in heaven. High priest on earth, high priest in heaven. Mountain on earth, mountain in heaven. The earth, the new heavens and the new earth. That's how it works in the book of Hebrews. There is a heaven-earth dualism that is eschatological in nature. In other words, it is pointing us to the future. What is this telling us? It's telling us that Sinai was nothing more than a type. Now, before we get to that, let's look at our next lesson. And this is this. Not only listen to the voice of God in Scripture, but also, lesson number two, cling to the promises of God and not to this world. Very important. Look again, verse 26. And his voice shook the earth then. But he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Uh, that is uh, the NASB being overly wooden. Because uh, it doesn't sound right, right? The heaven? <laughs> it's kind of like the heaven. So where's that at? Well, th- this is one of the reasons why I, I love the ASBs, because it's so literal. It is a singular, uh, uh, uh a noun. It is heaven. But anyway, I just, maybe that's just stuff I kind of obsess over. Sorry. Bring you into my exegetical consciousness for a little bit. Verse 27. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things. So that those things which cannot be shaken will remain. We don't need any further evidence that we live in a world of things that can be shaken. Just turn on the news and understand that, I don't know about you, but I don't remember being on the brink of nuclear war every day on the news. Do you? Maybe go back all the way back to to the Cold War or something like that. Or maybe to the missile crisis with Cuba or something like that. I, listen, I look at the headlines. Nuclear war with North Korea. imminent. Is California in danger? What? I mean, is this real or is that fake news? <laughs> we, don't, we know it's fake news. CNN is. It? No. No. <laughs> is it real? Is it possible? Nuclear weapons are going to be going off? Or come, we're, we're drawing close to nuclear war? What is this, World War Three? Well, folks, I don't know about you, but you understand there are hundreds of silos around Europe containing hundreds if not thousands of nuclear bombs. What do you think? They're just going to sit in there for eternity? What, is it just going to be there to look nice, polishy like you would like an old car or something? No, they're there for a reason. I don't know how God's going to use that in the eschaton. But I tell you what, it reminds me how fragile, how... Tra- One button, that's it. One button is all it takes to involve the nations in such an uproar war, so catastrophic it could literally wipe everyone off the planet. Wow! And yet, what do you see? How do you see society responding? The way that the Bible would tell us to respond? Fear, trembling, knowing the time to start? No! Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die, who cares? It's this brazen carelessness is in our world, but the Bible has already assured us that we live in a world that can be shaken, can be removed, all the temporary things. Now, if you look at the quote here, he is referring to Haggai, chapter 2. I love when New Testament authors quote these little sections out of the Old Testament, these little snippets of prophetic scripture out of, let's say, a book like Haggai. What do you know about Haggai today? I think we better go back and read Haggai. Because he's saying that Haggai was speaking of a time that is coming where God is going to shake everything that can be shaken. Uh, Look at how catastrophic this is. It says, yet once more I will will not only shake the earth, but also heaven. Wow! He's going to shake the heavens. The whole universe is going to be shaken to its core. What's going on there? Well, if you turn to Haggai, or I can read it for you, because I know you'll take a little time to get to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Haggai is is looking at a time when God's end time glory will return and will exceed the glory of that which was possessed by Israel at any time prior to that. He says in verse 5, As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, Now, just marvel with me. Would you just delight with me a little bit in the Bible? Look at how marvelous it is. What is this saying? This is saying that centuries after the Exodus, the Exodus still is relevant. It all goes together. He says, "What, what I promised you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst, do not fear. For the Lord... Says the Lord of Hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. Interesting reference to the dry land. What's the first time you hear of dry land? Genesis. Genesis. The dry land appears. So, what is Haggai saying? Well, he's saying the same thing that Isaiah says, that Jeremiah says, that Ezekiel says, that many of the prophets say that the end times, that the the, 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 the destruction of all things, the removing of the things that were created it's going to function like a decreation, an uncreation, an unraveling of the created order. Think about that. He uses Genesis language, but in the reverse. To undo it. Not to make it, but to undo it. So that at last, a new creation will come in, eventually, and emerge. This is our hope. And this is what Haggai was talking about. I will shake all the nations, not just North Korea, not just America, all the nations. They will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, thus says the Lord. So there is going to be some sort of trans. National work where God is going to restore His temple glory, but even further than that, brothers and sisters, as Revelation tells us, it will be to such an extent that no <laughs> temple will contain God's glory. It's as if God is going to bust the door down of the temple and say, "It cannot contain Me." Even as He said in Chronicles, uh, "The heavens of heavens cannot contain Me." You're going to build Me a house, please. The heavens can't contain the glory of God. So what is God going to do? He's going to remove the created things. All the things that can be shaken. For what? So that He can bring in the things that cannot be shaken. So the things that cannot be shaken would remain. Would remain. He's going to remove all of it. And so, if this world is to be removed this way, what is the response? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, I think Peter is a good interpreter. Excuse me, 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, this is a good parallel passage. This is another example of how the general epistles often harmonize with each other. Remember, the general epistles begin at Hebrews, they go all the way to Jude. But um, it's, it's amazing how that little cluster of books uniquely harmonizes with each other. Now listen to what Peter says. Peter says <clears throat> in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burnt up. I remember it's the first time I ever heard a sermon in my entire life. I was 19 years old, and I went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, And the preacher was David Hawking. And he was preaching on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. And he read this passage of scripture. It was on a Thursday night. And I sat there trembling, thinking to myself, God is going to destroy everything. That was my lofty theological way of interpreting what I was hearing. God is going to just, He's going to jack everything up. This is scary. Where do I fit in in all that? Where do I fit in in all that? Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and goodness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? What's the response? Just like Hebrews... But according to his promise, didn't he just say in Haggai that he made a promise? According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, because that is a righteousness that cannot be shaken. And therefore, the simple lesson for us, brothers and sisters, is that we cling to this promise We we live in the light of this promise. We live holy and we advance the kingdom of God. That is how you hasten the day of God. You preach the gospel. You evangelize. You spread the knowledge of God so that we can assist in the coming day of God, which is a remarkable thought in and of itself. Therefore, we can't trust things that are going to be reduced to rubble. Can you? We're to put no trust in this culture or in our clutter. We're to put no trust in the things that can be easily removed by God with a whisper. It will only disappoint us. Of course, all of this simply echoes what Jesus himself taught his disciples, which is just another way, uh, another example rather, that much of the brilliance of New Testament theology all goes back to the sayings of Jesus. It's amazing. After all, was it not our Lord who told us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And now Hebrews is telling us, Because earth itself will be shaken, And it will be done away with. (sighs) Where moth and rust destroy, Where thieves break in and steal, But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. And this is the imperative lesson here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our stuff and how we hold our stuff and how we love our stuff is often a reflection of where our heart and where we're truly, truly invested. What are our priorities in this life? Lesson number three and I think in league with what Jesus just taught us here, live for the kingdom. Look at the last verse here. Verse, back in Hebrews. I think it's verse beginning of verse 28. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Do you see now why last night, late last night, I'm sitting there going, Oh, I'm never going to get to all this. It's impossible. We're talking about God being a consuming fire. How do you summarize that? That some of you think, Well, just hurry up and summarize it. I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> I know you. I know what you think. Um, no, I know that you want me to take my time. You know, we have, you know, people. They argue over the color of the pews or the color of the carpet. In our church, I get done preaching. People say, like, just keep going. Don't worry about anybody. Just, just keep preaching. And other people are like, you know, I really appreciate that you just kind of summarize that yeah. <laughs> This isn't impossible. Ted, tent- the tightrope, it's impossible. The pastor's job is absolutely impossible. So here, here it goes. I just let it rip. <laughs> we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. What is the kingdom This is a major debate theologically among all the systems of theology. The dispensationalists and the post-millennialists both agree, ironically enough, that the kingdom is a literal manifestation. Uh, The the dispensationalists would say the kingdom is literal to such an extent that it will only appear and it will only reemerge during the millennium when the Jews... Retake Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and reinstitute the Old Testament sacrifices, the ironic priesthood. Well, postmillennialism vehemently rejects that. But postmillennialism would also say that it is our job in this present evil age to build the kingdom of God such that we see the kingdom of God in the transformed culture around us. Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, Edmund Clowney gave me probably the most indispensable piece of advice when it comes to kingdom theology. He says, if you want to understand the nature of the kingdom, ready, this is real heavy hermeneutics, look at the king. Is the king here today physically? No. Is the king coming back? Yes. So is the king here physically now? No. Is the kingdom here physically now? No. No. Is the king coming again? Yes. Is the kingdom coming again? Yes. Is the king inside of you? Yes. Is the kingdom inside of you? Yes. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is God's reign principle, where He rules and He reigns, where He dispenses His sovereign authority, And that is happening presently within the hearts of his people. He's governing our hearts. He's ruling and reigning in our hearts. And so the kingdom of God ultimately is an already not yet manifestation. There is the the already aspect of the kingdom of God. Look with me to uh, 1 Corinthians. I'm I'm sorry, Uh, um, not 1 Corinthians. That's that's, uh, a different point. Look with me to John chapter 5. John, excuse me, John chapter 3, verse 5. John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus spoke of the kingdom. And what's interesting about this is that John, in the gospel of John, really doesn't talk about the kingdom of God maybe a couple times. You know how many times the other gospels talk about the kingdom? Dozens. What gives? For the Apostle John, the kingdom has been substituted with the phrase eternal life. That's the governing idea, motif of John. But here, listen to what he says. In verse 5, he says, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and spirit, which is a reference to regeneration, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So how do you enter the kingdom of God? Well, through regeneration. That's how. And you know he's speaking about regeneration because of verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's what he was referring to. Regeneration is the portal into the kingdom of God, spiritually speaking. That is the already aspect of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is also not yet. The kingdom of God is also future. It's also pointing us forward the day where we inherit the kingdom of God. And you know what is the only real response to all of this? Is as, go back to Hebrews 12, but as Hebrews is telling us, the response that should be coming back here is gratitude. Isn't that amazing? Therefore, since you've received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Now why this? What an attitude of the heart in light of what has transpired with Jesus Christ in the new covenant and in the kingdom of God. I want to read a verse for you out of Deuteronomy. You can just write it down. Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 and 48. The reason why this is so important is because I think this stands somewhere behind what the author was thinking when he was writing... Hebrews chapter 12, that somewhere behind here, he has an Old Testament history in his mind, and he remembers that in the, under the Old Covenant, the people of God often failed to do this. What is Deuteronomy 28 about? Deuteronomy 28 is about the curses of the Old Covenant that came upon the people because of disobedience. And look at what it fundamentally had to do with. It had to do with the heart, brothers and sisters, the heart. Deuteronomy 28, 47. Because you did not serve the Lord, your God, with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all these things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, who the Lord will stand against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness in the lack of all these things and you will be and he will put a iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you they broke the old covenant because they did not serve the lord with gladness they didn't have a heart and therefore the lord prophesied that what would happen was a an iron yoke around their neck. And of course, we know that actually happened. That almost almost literally happened during the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. What happened was that that Jerusalem was taken captive and people were whisked away into Babylon. Many of them with an iron uh, yoke around their neck and chains being dragged off to a foreign country. In complete fulfillment of this, they lost the right to all these covenant privileges that they have. But we are to serve the Lord with gratitude. Well, first for what? Well, first, I would say gratitude begins by acknowledging that He has taken us out of darkness and put us into His kingdom. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. You need to be grateful. i uh, not a real grateful person. Uh, maybe you struggle with showing gratitude for things. I tell you, the new covenant believer should be the most grateful person in the world. The Christian, the Christian. We should be the most grateful people in the world that God would be so gracious to us. Beginning in verse 13 For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's where all gratitude begins. But it's not just gratitude. It's not just an attitude of the heart that God is concerned with. But it's also with a fruit-bearing life. We have to be productive as New Covenant members. We are also to serve the Lord. Look what it says here. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Therefore, we need to serve Him. Brothers and sisters, I want you to take stock. Are you serving the Lord? Are you productive? Do you have a game plan? Is there a ministry? Are you involved in something? Do you have a prayer list? Do you go and participate in the stated meetings of the church, like the men's study, the ladies' study? Do you go to evangelism? Maybe, Maybe you don't want to evangelize yourself, Maybe you can gather together with a group of people to pray for those that do go out. Pray for our safety. Pray for our unction. Pray for our protection and our strength. Uh, But but, but something, in some way, serve Him. Uh, It's dangerous not to serve God. It is dangerous not to be productive in the local church. I'll prove it to you. John chapter 15. You know this passage. Beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, my Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And so see, there has to be, by virtue of your union with Christ, by virtue of your regeneration, there has to be evidence of that. How does that evidence show itself? Sure. Sure. It shows itself by being obedient. But more than that, you notice what he says here? More fruit. (laughs) So so Jesus is not satisfied with the status quo for a Christian. He wants to see growth, uh, production. Uh, He wants to see quantity. He wants to see activity in your life for the kingdom of God. Uh, Look at this. Look at the progression here. Verse 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. See, and then the reverse of that is that if we are part of him, if we do have union with him, we cannot but bear fruit. Something's wrong if we're not bearing fruit in our lives, if we're not being productive, if we won't get involved, if we don't want to participate. Look at verse 8. Bringing it all the way home. Jesus says this. This is emphatic, isn't it? It's clear. Uh, This is not ambiguous. Jesus said, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Talk is cheap. You have to have the works to back it up. What did James say? James says, Faith without works, dead. And he was a, I think he was a reformed guy before his time. I think James agreed with Luther. But he still said, faith without works is dead. What is he saying? True faith, saving faith, authentic faith, always produces works. If you're saved by faith alone, your faith will never be alone. It will always be accompanied By a fruit-bearing life. Stay with me. Don't check out here because we're going to go a little long today. Just as we're called to be fruitful, we are also called to be reverent. Notice, we're to serve him with reverence and awe. Notice first that this is what is deemed acceptable service to God. This is what the Reformers following in the tradition of Calvin they believed in what was known as the regulative principle of worship. right? They, they had such a high view of worship in the, in the midst of the service of the local church. They, they had such a high view of worship that what they said was, look, if God doesn't prescribe it, we're not going to do it. We're not just going to take it upon ourselves to get creative and do it the way that we think is effective. No, 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 no. It has to be prescribed, right? Uh, for example, that's why we shouldn't celebrate Christmas necessarily as if it's some sort of ordinance from the Bible. Does the Bible teach us to celebrate something like Christmas? Of course not. Um, we're, we're told what the service of the church is to consider. Now you guys like, oh man, I can't do Christmas in this church? No, 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 I'm not talking about that. Look, I get a Christmas tree every year to the chagrin of some people that go overboard with this. But anyway. I'm not saying you can't celebrate Christmas as a family or whatnot. I'm saying you cannot make it as part of the local church. Right? You can't make it like the center stage. You can't make it an ordinance in the church. We are told what we're supposed to do in the church. Public reading of scripture. The singing of songs. Church membership. the uh, The Lord's Supper. Baptism. These are things that God has prescribed. And these are things that we do expect. But coming to this issue of reverence, notice that this is all a God-centered affair. Not only do we follow what has been prescribed for us, but we also recognize that the reason why we do that is because it's unto God. Notice what he says. An acceptable service to who? To God. I'll never forget. Art <coughs> was telling a story once, his great preacher. And he says that he walked out of a church service once he and Somebody turned to him and said, how did you like the worship?" And he said, what does it matter? It's not for me. Now, was he being you know, pastors you know, are always guilty of, you know, over generalization. But, I think case in point, right? Worship is not for us. Worship is for him. Uh, this is why when, when when we're being led in worship, Landon and, and, and Jonathan and and Amanda are up here singing, uh, we should be singing with them, right? Because we're not here to be spectators. We're, we're here to render acceptable worship, and he's actually going to go on to talk about the fruit of our lips. We're here uh, to worship and extol him, right? It is not so that we're here imitating anyone, impressing anyone. Boy, how many churches struggle with that, Right? Man, the worship team is like a soap opera up there. That's terrible. That's completely contrary to what we're supposed to be doing. That, that shows that we've, you've become radically man-centered in your worship. It's all about Him. And look at the logic. Because, verse 29, For our God is a consuming fire. Wow. A couple things to notice here. That phrase, a consuming fire, is an Old Testament, comes from the Old Testament, and it's it's found in different contexts. For example, in Deuteronomy 9, it is found that God is a consuming fire in a divine protecting way where God protects us from our enemies, but also in Isaiah 33, God is a consuming fire who will judge his people for their faithlessness, and so it's used in different contexts. Here, God is categorized as our God. Did you notice that? Let that comfort you. Because I think we read this text and we think of like, wow, judgment. And we should fear. But notice that the author of Hebrews did not hesitate to say that he is our God. Our God. Matter of fact, even though he is citing and going back to Deuteronomy and quoting directly out of there, uh, he, he, he changes it just a little bit. Uh, The the, the Septuagint says, your God is a consuming fire. Uh, The apostle here, the author, changes it to our God. Right? Because this is the strong covenant language that he is our God. And who is our God? He is a consuming fire. In other words, our God elicits reverence, awe, fear. Too often our worship... I think, fails to walk in the spirit of this. The preaching is often weak. The preaching is often a comedy act. The worship is man-centered, oftentimes. Uh, The fellowship is shallow, it's not spiritual. Uh, Zeal is low, apathy is normal. Uh, The commitment to the church is negligent. And the reality is, is that we often reflect in our worship that God is not a consuming fire. He is not holy, infinite, transcendent, and majestic. Uh, you go to some churches and you get this idea that God is like a divine therapist or something. That God is, maybe he's, like a, maybe he's like a charismatic entrepreneur or an entertainer. Maybe he's like a cosmic cheerleader in the sky, like rooting you on. Right? He's your light coach. We have so descended from the lofty view of Scripture that God is a cosmic God, that God is transcendent and altogether other than us. He is so beyond us. He so transcends us. If He doesn't condescend to us, the fact that He's a consuming fire means that we would be incinerated in His presence. Excuse me? Matter of fact, as we encounter the consuming fire of God, you remember what happened? God is a, Moses approaches God on the mountain, and, and, and he goes to God in the burning bush. Do you remember? And what is the first thing that God tells Moses? You want me to read it? Do not come here. He says, do do not come near here. Wow. This is Moses, the prophet. If Moses can approach, where, where does that leave us? Do not come here, Moses. Remove the sandals from your feet. The place on which you're standing is holy ground. Because God had chosen to manifest His covenant power, His covenant presence in the burning bush that was not consumed, He instantly holified the environment around Him. It was as if there was an intrusion of the new heavens and the new earth upon that mountain. This is what heaven is going to be like. We're going to get to go into the presence of God and we will be safe. This is a truly amazing... To some people, it seems like a contradiction to think in terms of fear and awe, knowing that Hebrews assures us that we have access, right? Hebrews chapter 10. We have a, there's a new and living way. We have access. We can come. However, however, there's no contradiction here. There is only the sweetest communion conceivable. Listen, without the element of pure, clean fear of God... There is neither service to God nor communion with God. Notice the balance. Hebrews is citing Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, that is looking forward and refers to God as our covenant God. And it stresses the fact that God is not ashamed to identify with us. It means He is our God. We are His people. And those that fear Him come to Him and serve Him. Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Reverence and awe. These are the characteristics of a pilgrim who is on his way to the eternal city, to the city of the living God, even to Mount Zion. I've often told the story, but if you go to Israel today, you go up to the Temple Mount. The ancient steps of, the, of Herod's Temple are still there. You can go at 2,000 years old. You can walk on And the steps are very particular, as I mentioned before. The steps are staggered. Short step, long step. Short step, long step. Why? It's just an awkward way to go go upstairs. We don't do that today with our stairs, right? It's because God wanted to slow the worshiper down. You don't hastily go up to the mountain of God. You go in a staggered fashion because you have to contemplate what you're about to do. When we come to worship together in church, let's prepare our hearts for worship. When we come to take the Lord's Supper, let's examine our hearts, let's prepare our hearts for worship. And in our our whole life, Romans chapter 12, all of life is worship. Therefore, we should be constantly vigilant, examining our hearts, keeping short accounts with God, So that we can serve him with fear and reverence all the days of our life. Father, I pray that you would do that in us.